CNN. Radio. This is CNN Profiles. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. And if you listen to the show, you could be the smartest person in the room on Inauguration Day. Because we have with us a man who's going to hold our hands and travel back in time to the inauguration of George Washington. Why is it that he had such a low-key inauguration? James Madison, oh, did his wife Dolly know how to throw a party? Andrew Jackson, why did he have to sneak out the back door? And FDR, there was not a period after he said, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. It's what came after that phrase that will really grab you. So much ground to cover to give us a fresh set of lenses in time for the second inauguration of Barack Obama. Our tour guide is Leo Rebuffo, professor of American history at George Washington University. Professor Rebuffo, welcome to CNN Profiles. Happy to be here. Let's do some time travel now. Let's start from the beginning. George Washington had universal support in the nation. That must have been quite an inauguration, quite a bash. Well, the presidency was structured at the Constitutional Convention with the notion that uh, Washington would, uh, would, get, would get the office. Uh, it was a fairly modest inauguration. He set a precedent of using a Bible. You don't have to use a Bible, but he set a precedent. He set another precedent of giving a talk. Certainly was enthusiasm uh, among the small crowd, but it's something we have to remember. Americans aren't good at remembering that we were once a small country with three million people in it. And not only was that the case, but Washington did not want to seem monarchical. So we don't get we don't get our first real inaugural ball until James Madison's wife, Dolly, pushes it in 1809. So 1809, James Madison, what was he like? What were we facing at the time? And how did Dolly Madison get into the picture and push for this ball? Well, Dolly Madison was truly an extraordinary woman, uh, and he was an extraordinary man. He was one of our shortest presidents and also one of our smartest. Uh, He's generally considered the lead author of the Constitution. Unfortunately, he was a terrible president. The key issue of the day was what was the United States going to do about this kind of world war between uh, Britain and Napoleonic France? And the British were taking Americans off ships, claiming they were runaway Brits, as they were to some extent, and impressing them in the British Navy. And ultimately, to cut to the chase, the United States went to war under Madison against Britain, the famous War of 1812. And the best you could say about it was that it was a tie but we probably wouldn't call the war a tie now if the White House was burned, as happened. But those are the downsides of, uh, of the Madison administration. Probably the biggest upside is starting the festivities. Uh, according to legend, at least, uh, Dolly insisted on having ice cream, which was then a, a rarity at the, at the celebration. So the war happened after the inauguration. It sounds like three years after the inauguration, right? Uh, it, hap- it happened in it happened in 1812. It happened in the second term, yeah. Right. So, so was there some sense when he was being inaugurated of great optimism? I mean, what was it that people loved about this guy, or was he a divisive figure going in? Well, he was Jefferson's successor. Uh, Jefferson had done a fine job of calming the political mood. Uh, the anger of the 1790s was much stronger than we have now. The whole notion of a loyal opposition hadn't developed yet. Uh, and Jefferson did much to calm the country in his 1801 inauguration. 
of um, saying we are all Federalists, the opposition, we are all Republicans, what Democrats were called then. So Madison is the guy who comes after. He's the George H.W. Bush to the Ronald Reagan, to use the modern glib analogy. And, and, and take us back then, just rewind a little bit, the Jefferson inaugural. Uh, when Jefferson came in, uh, was our society split as much as, or our, our polity split as much as it seems to be now? Oh, it was much, it was much more split uh, because larger numbers of people said the opposition leaders, either John Adams and Alexander Hamilton among the Federalists or Jefferson and Madison among the Republicans, were genuine traitors maybe a Federalist trying to create a monarchy, uh, of Jeffersonians trying to create the American-French Revolution. None of that was true, but one of the great American sociologists, a man named David Reisman, has said that Americans are always inclined toward big talk. And the big talk, the hyperbole, goes back to the beginning. And it's interesting because you know, big talk can get you into trouble. I mean, all the all the authorities on how to negotiate based on a win-win situation, which is really what we want for our society, talks about listening and the importance of really paying attention to the other side. And so you're talking about big talk dominating us from the beginning. Let me just ask you one more question on Jefferson. So you had Jefferson on one side, Adams on another. Was that as tense a relationship as, let's say, President Obama and John Boehner? It was different because Jefferson and Adams had once been very close friends, and in their old age, they became very close friends again. They died on the same day, July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence that they helped to create. Uh, how's that for what Americans considered providence? But in their old age, they came to the conclusion, well, we were pretty feisty. Uh, back then, 30 years ago, but the differences weren't that great. And in fact, in policy, Jefferson adopted a lot of Federalist stuff. And so the differences weren't that great back then. They seem to be great. The differences, as is often the case, the differences don't seem so great in retrospect. Uh, You look now at uh, retired political figures Uh, I guess Robert Dole would be a case in in point, though I do admire him, not least because of his acerbic wit, now being seen as a symbol of bipartisanship. But when he was debating in 1976 against Fritz Mondale, Jimmy Carter's running mate, Dole said that the Democrat Party, as he called it, was responsible for most of the wars in the 20th century. Not very nice. Not very bipartisan. I remember that. And uh, so we so we go through. You've taken us through James Madison. They had quite a party. Was it was it pretty orderly, or did it get out of hand? That one was pretty orderly. The first really raucous inaugural is Andrew Jackson's uh, in eighteen eighteen twenty nine. He had been, you might almost say, cheated out of the presidency in eighteen twenty four. He certainly thought so. He was far ahead in the popular vote but he did not have a majority in the, elect- the Electoral College, and the Congress chose John Quincy Adams. So for the Je- Jacksonians, 1829 was a real celebration, and the White House was, it wasn't burned as with the British, but it was smashed up by the largest inauguration crowd to that point. Jackson himself had to sneak out the back. 
And whether this was a bad thing or a good thing is hard to say. It certainly did show uh, the energy of, uh, of the Jacksonian era and the Young Republic. I should also say that Americans, when it came to eating in the 19th century, were not genteel. At Lincoln's first inaugural on the eve of the Civil War, the crowd just ran at the food in the White House and gobbled it down. Uh, there is a serious point here that even at times of great crisis, and, and Lincoln's inauguration speech is a plea for the South not to leave the Union. Even at times of great crisis, ordinary behavior continues and even sleazy behavior continues. Uh, Lincoln not only has uh, this disorderly uh, bunch of eaters at his reception, he has people lining up outside his office asking to be named postmaster in Peoria and so forth while he's trying to keep the South from seceding. And, and so since Lincoln is on our minds now, obviously, with the movie based on in part on Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, uh, tell us the importance. He was one of the greatest speechmakers, clearly, if not the greatest. Uh, what was the importance of the Lincoln inaugural address in his time, did it move people? Did it shape the debate and the outcome of anything? Uh, the first inaugural obviously doesn't work. Uh, Lincoln's always kind of a moderate. He thinks the Southerners really don't want to secede, but he is firm on the principle that we will not allow the expansion of slavery. That's why there's a Republican Party, to stop the expansion of slavery. So he's actually pleading with the white South uh, to behave in a way that is contrary to what the white South perceives as its interests. I mean, its interests might well have been, in reality, to give up slavery for some compensation. The second ad address, which is a uh, little more than a month before Lincoln's death, it gets pushed into that uh, almost immediately because it is a meditation, an almost religious meditation on the war. Is God punishing all Americans because of the great sin uh, of slavery? And, ju so and, and, just, and just to set the scene at, scene, at that point of his second inaugural, uh, how many Americans had died in the Civil War approximately? Oh, over 600,000. It's near the end. It may not be the exact figure, but it's generally said that more Americans north and south died in that war than died in all of our other wars. Uh, I'd like to say one more thing about, about Lincoln, mm -hmm. which might be a bit of a corrective to the movie. Uh, one of my friends, Larry Powell at Tulane, said it would have been a better movie if they'd focused on the relationship between Lincoln and the great black abolitionist Frederick Douglass. And I can just see the scene where the guards try to keep Douglas out of the White House at the reception, and Lincoln says, let my friend Douglas in. Did that actually happen? Yeah, so that happened. That absolutely happened. Lots of things happened that sound odd, but they really happened. Why did the guards keep him out, and what came of that conversation? Uh, he was uh, a black man. They didn't think he should be a guest. The relationship between Douglas and Lincoln was, was problematical. Uh, Lincoln was more moderate on, um, for instance, the question of taking territory from the white Southerners and giving it to the ex-slaves. It's not really a conversation. It's, it's just, uh, it's just a, an instruction from the president to let Douglas in. 
Well, this is CNN Profiles. We're listening to American history history professor Leo Rabuffo of George Washington University. Uh, professor Rabuffo, you, uh, uh, you, you got your undergraduate education from Rutgers. You went on to get a Ph.D. at Yale in, in what precisely? Uh, well, it's called American Studies. In those days, it was mostly history and literature combination. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started out in a field known as intellectual history, the history of ideas. When I came to GW, uh, it's Washington. Everybody studies politics and foreign policy, so I branched out, so to speak. And, and, and you've you've risen quite a way in your in your career, and so all of all of us parents are always interested. Well, you know what what influence did one's parents have in your case in particular? And so tell us what uh, ju- we're going to get back to the presidents in a moment, but just tell sure. us how you got here. What did your father do? What did your mother do? What was your family like? Well, my family was white working class, lower middle class. My father was a public school janitor. Uh, my mother was a telephone operator who then rose up to be kind of a, uh, a receptionist. It wasn't, it wasn't an affluent family, but it was an intact family, a supportive family uh, that wanted me to get ahead. Uh, like a lot of little boys, I had a lot of interests. Dinosaurs, of course, a chemistry set. And I read some history books for children. Uh, There was this wonderful landmark series in the 1950s when I was growing up. And I loved it. If I'd been better at science, I might have become an astronomer, my first dream. But I seemed to have this knack for history. I went to Rutgers thinking I would be maybe an elementary school teacher. And some of my great professors there said... uh, Think of getting a Ph.D. and having this life of teaching, writing at the university level, and it worked out very well. I've been at GW since 1973. Uh, Before that, I taught at Bucknell in Pennsylvania and taught for a couple of years at Yale while working on my Ph.D. Well, you have a first love in in American history. What what is your first love? What period do you? It's love? it's the Great Depression. My my first book was on right wing opponents of Roosevelt. Now that was really a volatile time too, but it's. My first love because my parents talked in a non-historian's way uh, about the Depression and about Roosevelt, whom they regarded as their savior. They both worked on uh, federal work relief programs through the Works Progress Administration, the WPA. And that was always, always fascinating to me, and it's still fascinating to me. And so now uh, continue this time travel with us. Uh, well, FDR, what I had always thought uh, was one of his most famous discreet sentences uh, that we've come to associate with him. But but you're going to correct us on that. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Is actually about one third of the sentence. Uh, you know, every generation has its memories or its made-up memories of presidents and. Um, in our more psychological era, there's almost a tendency to think of Roosevelt as kind of a presidential Dr. Phil. And the New Deal was a kind of psychological success, but there is more to that sentence. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Fear inhibits action. We need action. And then there's the rest of the address about policy programs to some extent 
and also Americans need to be more disciplined as in a war to fight to fight the depression. You know, as you said, that line, fear inhibits action. Uh, that's actually, if you're talking about Dr. Phil, that's that's my takeaway now. I didn't realize that. I think we all know that, really, yeah. We know it, but to hear a leader say it, fear inhibits action, boy, I can relate to that. We all can. Yep. Uh, uh, continue the time travel, because this is fascinating. Uh, what other inaugurations should we look at just to give us a fresh perspective on what's going to be happening in the next few days? Uh, in general... The second inauguration isn't as exciting for all the obvious reasons. It's not, not the issue of how the outgoing president and the incoming president are going to relate. And especially if they're from different parties, sometimes that's very, very bad, going back to Jefferson and Adams. Ike, in 53, wouldn't even come into the White House and have coffee with the, with the Trumans. Well, you don't have that in the second inauguration. You're familiar with the president. And so not only do you have a pattern of a less big, gaudy, glamorous inauguration, you get a pattern in the media coverage that says, oh, um, this is going to be a less gaudy, glamorous inauguration. But you can sometimes get good speeches uh, and important turns in policy that are signaled in the inaugurations. Now, just a second. Ike would not have coffee with the Trumans? Uh he would not come into the White House. And Truman was furious. Truman was furious because by that point, that had fairly well been established. And often the, the Inauguration Day festivities are very, very friendly. Uh, in 1913, William Howard Taft was so happy not to be president anymore, having lost to Wilson, that he insisted on sticking around for the lunch. Uh, but... Uh, the partisanship of 1952 was uh, echoing more that of the 1790s. It was fairly common to say that, uh, as the Republican campaigner Joe McCarthy put it, the Democrats were the party of 20 years of treason, FDR and, and Truman. So it's not entirely surprising that I did that. So, so, so all these anecdotes and the divisiveness in American politics and yet still experienced hands in Washington today will tell you that they feel it is more divisive in Washington today than in their 20 or 30 or 40 year career covering Washington. You have an even broader perspective. You don't buy that? A great historian named Eric Hobsbawm said the job of historians is to remember what other people forget. And we all forget. Oh, we, we romanticize early years of our own lives, or we have sentimental opinions about past generations. Uh, the World War II generation was a great generation. It wasn't necessarily the greatest generation. If we could contact the veterans of the Civil War and the War for Independence at a seance, they might have a, a say about that. Well, we're human beings. We're, we're a little narcissistic. So it's our time that's the most important. It's either better or worse, whereas there's a lot more continuity in, in human existence than we generally think. I wonder what role technology and information play in all this, because you know these, these earliest inaugurations you're talking about, word was spread through the newspaper. That started changing at some point. What were the key, key watersheds where 
technology started to spread this event and this moment in a much broader way? Well, Americans have always loved technological innovation, and in that sense, it's never been a conservative country. And you go back to to Benjamin Franklin, uh, certainly, and the Constitution emphasis on patents and so forth. So all along the way, the latest technology, particularly communications technology, is... uh, is used pretty much as fast as you can. Uh, Not long after there's a telegraph with just a little line into Maryland, you get coverage of the inauguration of uh, 1845. They do some films of uh, McKinley's inauguration. I'm sorry, 1845 was Polk? Polk, yes. Well, 1845 Polk, first telegraph. Uh, Keep on going. When was the first radio? What came next? Radio? Uh, Attempted filming McKinley, 1897. You get radio with Coolidge in 1925. My countrymen, no one can contemplate current conditions without finding much that is satisfying and still more that is encouraging. Our country is leading the world in the general readjustment to the results of the great conflict. You get uh, the first TV with Truman in 1949. You, Harry S. Truman, do solemnly swear. I, Harry S. Truman, do solemnly swear. You will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That's a particularly interesting inaugural. It's the biggest celebration to that point because of Truman's victory. Uh, Lots of Hollywood stars participate, and Truman sets out his program. It's a wonderful inauguration that's a prelude to a truly disastrous four years in office. So there's no necessary connection between a good inauguration, well-publicized, and what comes next. Interesting. And you mentioned the role of Hollywood. I mean, was Hollywood not involved in in previous inaugurations? Well, not, not, not to the extent. You, you, start, you start to get, um, I couldn't tell you when the first stars appear at, an, at, at inauguration parties. I would bet it's in the, in the, 19, in the 1920s. Um, Al Jolson uh, wrote Warren Harden, Harding's uh, campaign song in 1920. So maybe Al showed up for one of the, for one of the parties. Hmm. In Truman's case, with Haberdasher meets Hollywood. Um... Frank Sinatra, then in his liberal period, I think uh, Lauren Bacall. Um, and, of course, Kennedy has a, has a big bash involving Frank Sinatra, and Reagan does later with Frank Sinatra when Frank has become a conservative. And uh, which So, per- so to, to, to get to your bottom line, yes, the coverage is going to say, wow, People are paying attention to this on Twitter. Well, sure they are. They're Americans. They love the latest gizmo. And what, Are you on Twitter? Uh, yes, but I don't use it much. Right. Do you think, I mean, just, just knowing what Twitter is, 140 characters, uh, I mean, in some ways, we have a lot of information clutter now because of the whole media landscape. Did that kind of clutter exist back in the older, in the earlier inaugurations we've been talking about? That depends. It depends on what you mean by uh, by clutter. Certainly, um, some of the speeches were so long, even if they were good, 
only the most devout partisans would pour through them when published. Let's take the longest inaugural address, and it's something of a joke. William Henry Harrison, he supposedly died of, an, of pneumonia that he got on Inauguration Day because he gave this long address. Well, you don't die of pneumonia for being out in the cold. and He didn't get, he didn't get pneumonia on Inauguration Day, and it's a pretty good speech attacking Jacksonian autocracy and um, in 1841. And also it favors home rule for the District of Columbia, which is a good idea. Hmm. How long was that speech? Uh, it was it was over an hour. I mean, I've, I've, I've read it. It certainly was well over an hour to deliver. But it was a... Maybe, close, maybe closer to two. But that's interesting. It was a partisan speech. It was a partisan speech. First, uh, when there are two terms, uh, the first speech tends to be the more partisan. Uh, that's true of Ike. That's true of Reagan. Uh, even though it's not true of Jefferson. The second speech is more ecumenical, more of an emphasis on we're all Americans together. I would, that theme is never, is never ap- absent. No president ever says, uh, I'm going to divide the country and uh, screw the people who are on the other side. But there can be more of a, a partisan thrust. Reagan's Reagan's famous line that uh, government is the problem and not the and not the solution to our problems in 1981. Uh, you know, j- just going back and looking forward, uh, you mentioned uh, George Washington was the first person to put his hand on the Bible uh, in an inauguration, but that tradition has not been followed a hundred percent. Who who has it's, not put his hand on the Bible? Franklin Pierce, there's a, there's a name hardly anyone remembers, one of our poorest presidents in, in 1853. But uh, sometimes there's not a Bible nearby when someone is sworn in in a non-formal inaugural after a president's death, for instance, Calvin Coolidge in, in 19, 1923. Uh, there's the famous scene, we've all seen the pictures, of Johnson being sworn in, Jackie Kennedy is there, in the bloody dress, and he's with what looks like a Bible, but is actually a Catholic religious book. It's the closest thing to a Bible they could they could find on the plane. I didn't know that. So, what would make this Tuesday's inauguration fascinating for you? What would make it fascinating is if Obama broke Obama-like precedents. In other words, if he yielded to an editor and talked a little less, and if he actually put a lot more policy in the address. So I think, well, that would be more fascinating to us. It would be politically wiser to save the policy for the State of the Union in a couple of weeks and give a short inspirational address again. Not that fascinating, but good politics and probably good for the country. Can you think of any inauguration where a president came in there in his second inaugural and really surprised us? Uh, Sometimes the world surprises us. Uh, Wilson's first inauguration in 1913 is a pitch for domestic reform. 
His second inauguration is in 1917 is uh, right before the country goes to war. There already are American ships being sunk by the Germans. So the town is filled with soldiers, and Wilson gives a big, emotional, thoughtful pitch for the United States having to play a more important role in the world. I mean, that, that certainly is a very important and not typical second inauguration, but then world wars don't come along all that often, thank goodness. And they, and they do say that uh, great people are often defined by having to rise to great events. Uh, uh, and we, we certainly seem to be in the middle of one right now. It's not as dramatic as a war necessarily, although we are at war. I'm kind of an outlier here. I don't think the U.S. is is facing an extraordinary crisis now. It's fighting bitter political battles over money. We've seen that a lot, and one way or the other, they'll be compromised out. It's a lot different from the 70s and the 80s when presidents are sworn in. They get the nuclear launch codes with the notion that they might actually use them Standard estimate was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, 30 million Americans would die in a small nuclear war. And that was taken seriously in the White House. And that was on every president's mind when he got the nuclear codes as he's sworn in. We're not at that state now, thank goodness. Well, Professor Rebuffo, thank you so much for your, for your tour of history and uh, for really giving us uh, some, some very concrete and vivid examples of, uh, of what inaugurations and presidents of the past uh, have brought to this country. Happy to be here. By the way, you can find CNN profiles on our website, cnn.com soundwaves, or download us from iTunes or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Share.